Church, I'm going to take a few moments to set the stage this morning for the verses that we're going to be in. But if you do have your Bibles, and I hope you do as I'm speaking, you can go ahead and turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 10. We're going to read those three verses in just a moment. But before we get there, I want you to know that um, what I've been compelled to share with you this morning is, is out of humility, love, and concern. Um, I don't know how to say that and mean it to the superfluous degree without saying it again. It is out of humility, love, and concern. Um, in fact, I've experienced quite a bit of restlessness. I already don't sleep well, but when something is upon your heart and you're convicted of it, boy, do you have a time. Um, I don't generally say God spoke to me or gave me something because I feel like those can be misused. However, when I do study daily, spend time in God's Word, and I feel convicted strongly about something, I tend to pay attention. And when I pray it away, yet it stays, uh, I feel I'm much more convinced how vital it is. And so I don't persuade, or persuade you of my goodness because I will be the first to say that there's nothing good in me but God. Nor do I say that to convince you of piety, because even that is mere Phariseeism without God. I say that because I do take seriously God's call to his under-shepherds when he speaks to Titus through Paul in verse 9 and tells them they ought to be holding fast to the faithful word in accordance with the teaching so that you will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Here's an example of what uh, exhorting and refuting looks like. If you, most of us have, raised a child, you raise a child in, in, in the way that you think they ought to go, how they should behave, how they live. You even determine what movies they may or may not watch due to questionable content. But if another person tried to lead your child in a different direction that you felt was biblically correct, you would likely contend for the truth. That's my child. Don't do that. And you would be right in doing so. How much more important is it to contend for the truth in matters of eternity, where one of two places will be everybody's final destination? One thing that's so vital in the Christian life is discernment. God calls us to be discerning, or to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves, Matthew 10, 16. Why? Because he sends us out into a world full of ravenous wolves. That's not just a metaphor. There are people that hate God and his truth and they will try to quite literally kill you, if not spiritually, physically. Some would even do as Wile E. Coyote did and don the sheep's clothing to convince you. Paul tells us that the Bereans were more noble. Why? Because they received the word with excitement and eagerness. But then he says they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That means the Bereans were hearing what Paul was teaching and examining the Old Testament scriptures because the New Testament had not yet been penned. This is not a new concept. God tells us many times in scripture that we're all we're to meditate on his word daily. Day and night, actually. Psalm 1 tells of the man who is blessed. Not with prosperity, health, and wealth. 
Rather, he's blessed because he meditates on the law of God day and night, and he has success living a holy life unto God. If you look in the book of Joshua, the first chapter has 18 verses, and nine of them repeat to Joshua to do as the Lord commanded. And then in verse 8, he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Why? For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Deuteronomy 4, the famous Shema. I've pounded that drum for a long time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." Also in Deuteronomy, there's entire chapters devoted to blessings for obedience and uh, curses for disobedience. If you haven't done so, look at the book of Isaiah at some point in time, or any of the Old Testament prophets, and you'll see that they continually chastise their people for disobeying the word of the Lord. They called them to repentance and prescribed the curses promised in Deuteronomy as a result of their disregard for the holiness and glory of God which you can see is on full display in their repeated disobedience. Now, why is this so important? Well, when God's people don't know God's word, they don't know God's will. And if we don't know God's will, we cannot live a life in every respect worthy of a holy God. And, and, and let me say, this is not a works-based salvation. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing more. Nothing. That's right. Amen. Not Christ plus. Not do this then. By grace through faith in Christ alone. But living a holy life unto the Lord does require us to obey. Paul says in Philippians 2, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but much more now in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Obedience is not work-based. It's not. Obedience is cultivated in the heart of an individual who was at one time an object of God's wrath turned child of God by his grace and his mercy through the shed blood of his Son. But when God's people do not fully understand God's will, we can, as John MacArthur says, one of my favorite preachers, die the death of a thousand heresies. The reason this is so important is because the American church has intentionally or unintentionally subscribed to heresies that bring about death in worship, in disobedient living, in how we approach God, how we spend our lives, the things we do, the things we say, the things we consume and the desires of our heart are all dictated by all those other things. If our worship is not brought into a holy submission to God, we risk practicing idolatry and convincing ourselves we're blessing God. 
And I'm not making this up. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, Therefore, my beloved brethren, present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, because that's your spiritual worship. Everything we do. If we waste our life living or loving the things of the world more than the things of God, we risk a slow, painful, spiritual death of our own doing. Think about it this way. If I brought a small vial of poison, don't worry, it's not, <laughs> and asked you to drink it, chances are you would show me the door. Then I might ask you to just drink a little, not much, with the promise of the experience of a lifetime. You may still discern my intentions and send me packing, and rightly so. But, if I came to you with the same vial of poison and plastered, this is not really a fancy sticker, but if I plastered something on it that looked flashy and it said, not poison, the best experience you'll ever experience, and told you that if you drank it, you'll feel stronger, more in control, you might even get that special someone to pay attention to you, if you're human, and last I checked, we all are, you would likely drink it for the experience you were promised. It's okay. If you, you can nod your head if you want. You don't have to be, I, I would. I mean, now what would happen? Well, after some time, you might approach me with apprehension and tell me you're not feeling well. Well, this drink was supposed to help you. In fact, it's made you feel worse. Now, if I was good at what I was doing, I might convince you that no one else has ever experienced that when drinking that. Poison. I mean, super drink. Maybe you just need to drink more or try harder. You may not be following my thought here, and I apologize if you're not. Sometimes I get a little wordy, but the vial of poison is heresy. Heresy comes in all shapes and forms. It could be a false sense of worship, a false sense of assurance of your faith, a, a false teaching maybe, maybe even, even a false gospel. You see, if they add anything to Jesus... Paul said they're to be accursed, anathema. Even if an angel from heaven comes down and says a different gospel than he preached, which is Christ alone, they're to be accursed. Yet the more you ingest, the sicker you become. And because of the wolf's cunning ability, he's got you to drink and drink and drink of this poison. And so the point I'm trying to make here is this is why it's so important to meditate on God's word. So, the, so and vital because it enables us to see the poison for what it really is before it can kill us. And this is continually happening on a large scale in the modern church. And if we're not practicing discernment, we too will likewise get caught up and die the death of a thousand heresies. This is not a fun topic to discuss, church. And, and you can't see it, but I am nervous and burning. But tr there is truth and there is error. This is the truth. And if anybody dissuades from that or teaches away from that, it's error and it's heresy. Now I know that was a lengthy introduction, but it was necessary to help us understand where we're going and how this applies to us. So now let's get to the text uh, of Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 3. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire on them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, Uncle, speaking about his nephews, is it, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. Church, the first thing I want us to look at here in verse 1 is worship worthy of a holy God. Worship worthy of a holy God. And let me start again by quoting something John MacArthur said about worship that we give to God. He says, quote, The highest duty and the highest privilege, the most essential behavior and the supreme responsibility for humanity is to worship God. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with catechisms. Catechisms are documents written throughout church history that sometimes uh, are in the question and answer form or short statements. And what they do is they summarize a lot of the teachings of the Bible and make it easier for people to understand or to commit to memory. They did that a lot because not everybody could have this all the time front to back. In one of a, a catechism, um, the first question says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The second question is, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify Him and enjoy Him? The answer, the Word of God which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. John Piper, another one of my favorite preachers, says, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. Everything we do is an act of worship. Everything. We were created by God with a desire to worship. You will worship anything. I will worship anything. That's just how we were created. But it's right, worthy worship that God tells us about in this passage. There's, and I presuppose that there's two worldviews, okay? That is, God of the Bible and everything else is idolatry. That's the bottom line. That's why people don't teach Christianity in schools, but they'll teach you about Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and every other world religion. They don't want to teach Christianity because Christianity says, nope, this is the only way. People say, well, I don't like that. I say, well, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with Jesus. He's the one that said it. I'm just backing up his word. There's two worldviews. Whatever is not the God of the Bible is idolatry and self-worship. It's what I call a flipping of the script of God's Word. Instead of human beings being created in God's image and worshiping Him as He deserves and expects, idolatry is the process of creating a God in our image and worshiping how we want. This is why what Nadab and Abihu do stands in stark contrast to what they have previously been commanded to do for like the entire books of Exodus and Leviticus. I think the phrase, just as the Lord commanded, occurs some 8 or 12 times in chapters 8 and 9, right before chapter 10. And both of these chapters are full of sacrifice, what they're giving to God, both for the peace offering, the burnt offering, the sin offering. Every time Moses is explaining to, to Aaron what to do and how to do it, Nadab and Abihu, his sons, are there participating, helping their father, hearing the word of the Lord over and over and over again. Yet in verse or chapter 10, what do we see? They do whatever they want. The script gets flipped, but not by God, by two people that knew better. Without inquiring with their father Aaron or their uncle Moses who spoke directly with God, Nadab and Abihu flip the script, take their fire pans, place incense on them, 
and offer strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. And as a result, they died. And what is God teaching us here? Well, here we have two men who were set apart for helping lead worship before the people. And instead of continuing to obey what the Lord commanded, they decided to do what they wanted to do. They failed to uphold the very clear and repetitious command of the Lord. If this would have been allowed to continue, the entire nation of Israel would have done as they pleased, and this poison of willful disobedience would have spread. And if you're no stranger to the Old Testament, you know that's exactly what happened time and time again. They suffered continually because they did not follow God's clear command. And so God naturally had to deal with what Nadab and Abihu did. And let me pull this into our modern times. What heresy do we face in our day that's similar? Well, in church, I feel like I need to preface this with, y'all didn't bring tomatoes, did you? Okay. I mean, that's fine. This was donated. <laughs> um, church, that heresy of, of whatever kind of worship we want to give to God in modern times is a man-centered experiential emotionalism that makes us feel good and exalts us over God. That's the kind of worship that God Nadab and Abihu killed. I'm going to try to draw this out a bit, but let me be very selective in how I approach this. Um, let me consider for a moment, does anybody right off the top of your head remember what took place in Exodus 32? Moses went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, right? He was gone for about 40 days, Mount Sinai. When the people saw that Moses was delayed, they approached Aaron and said, Aaron, make us a God that will go before us. As for this guy Moses, you know, your brother, uh, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So what does Aaron do? He tells them, take off your gold jewelry, and then he makes them a molten calf, a false god. Our false gods look a little different. They generally reflect a, at us in the, in the mirror. I want to read directly from the scripture for this next part of Exodus 32, though. So you don't have to turn there. This is just setting the stage. He took this from their hand, that is Aaron, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, notice the progression. Identifying a false god, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings, peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. False god, worship or altar building, playing, eating, drinking, and celebrating. Then God tells Moses to go down at once, and he says, For your people that you brought out of Egypt have corrupted their way. God then wants to blot them out, if you know the story, because they so quickly turned to idolatry to worship false gods. And I just want us to pay attention for a moment here to what Moses says when he comes down the mountain and meets Joshua halfway. Remember, just a moment ago, they're worshiping this false god, and the text says they got up to play. They were enjoying the, the, the worship of the false god and playing around. And a little further in the chapter, it says, Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But he said, that is, Moses says, That's not the cry of triumph, nor is it the cry of defeat. That's the sound of singing, I hear. Now let me preface with, 
I'm not saying singing to God is bad, so don't hear that right now. But notice that the constant singing, probably dancing, and I'm sure bowing down and prostrating themselves before this fake God was taking place. False God, worship, false worship. Let me flip over to Daniel 3 real quick and read. If you're not familiar, this is when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, set up his vast empire on the, on the earth, right? And even that was a sovereign act of God. He builds a statue of himself. I mean, how much more prideful could you get? This thing was 90 feet tall. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. That's one and a half of me laid down. And here's what it says in Daniel 3. Then the herald proclaimed loudly, that's the person that gives the message on behalf of whoever's in charge. To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Note again the sound of repeated music and bowing down. Let's first say again, there's nothing wrong with music and singing to God if it's indeed worthy of a holy God. That is not what I'm trying to say here. Every song we praise the Lord for this morning was holy unto Him, was good, it exalted God. But not once in either of these situations was the God of the Bible mentioned, praised, honored, or given worship. And if this is the standard of worship where groups of people congregate, then it's not worship to God. It is worship to a God but not the God. And so what's the application? What's the take-home regarding worship worthy of a holy God? Well, I'm flipping over to the New Testament here, but in John chapter 4, you know that Jesus intentionally is tired, worn out, thirsty, hot, in the middle of the day, and says, look boys, go in town and give me something to eat. He just wanted them to go away so he could deal with the Samaritan woman. Right? Intentionally sought out after and what does he do? They have an exchange talking about this and that. And he's like, okay, I'm going to move from the physical to the spiritual. And she's like, hey, you people say we have to go to Jerusalem to worship. But our fathers say we can worship here on this mountain. And Jesus gently and kindly with compassion says, there is an hour coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit. God gave us a spirit. Not of fear or timidity, right? But of power and love. God gave us truth. Spirit and truth. The only way we can rightly worship God in spirit and truth is what Jesus says is a worthy worship to God. Is that we know what God has prescribed as acceptable worship. Nadab and Abihu knew, but they didn't do it. If we don't know what God prescribes, we're going to be unable to practice discernment, and we may intentionally or unintentionally flip the script, practice idolatry, and call it worship. In church, music is not worship alone. Music is part of worship. Preaching and teaching is worship. Teaching your children is worship. The way you live your life is worship. Every single thing you do, if it's not for God, it's for something else. And it acts as worship. But if we don't know what God prescribed, how can we worship worthy of a holy God? 
If we only see some sort of man-centered or me-centered emotional experience that makes us feel good, we have not given God glory nor worshipped Him as He deserves. Not in spirit and truth. Let me back up and say, too, there's nothing wrong with emotions. There's been many a times when I've sung a song, I've been in a dark place of despair, sung a song like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the God that loves me. That's the God that came for me. That's the God that died for me. And that's the God that goes before me. And I, I come to tears because that reminds me that no matter what, God is worthy and God is good. There's nothing wrong with emotions. But we should be doing what God said when we worship Whatever he's prescribed is acceptable. And when other people are not, we have to have the boldness and the conviction to call it out for what it is and not promote or accept it because what it does is it leads us down a path that gets very slippery and very gray. All that to say, this is how we know. This is how we know. Second thing I want us to look at here, and I'll move quickly. I may even get done before 12. Y'all will be all frustrated about Steve. Steve. <laughs> Verse 2 shows us that um, not only do we need to worship worthy of a holy God, but God is a consuming fire. I know we don't like to talk about this kind of stuff on the left side of the Bible, but I'm going to get to that in a minute. But God is a consuming fire. We read that after strange fire was offered to God, that the fire of God came out and consumed Nadab and Abihu. Licked them up like the fire that came down from heaven and licked up all the offering and all the water in the altar that Elijah built before the prophets of the false god Baal. That's one of my most favorite chapters in the Bible. One man stood alone with God. Consumed them. That very same fire was always the same fire that came down and it consumed the offerings they made to God. The sin offering. The fire of the Lord came out and consumed it. What does that tell us? The very same fire came out and consumed the sin of Nadab and Abihu. And we certainly don't have time to read the entire chapter, but I'm going to summarize Deuteronomy 4 because God calls His people to remember a few things. When we don't remember, this is obvious, but we forget. But we forget because we don't remember, and we don't remember because we don't read. But God calls his people, hey, I want to remind you of a few things. He calls them to remember his statutes and his judgments just as he taught them and continues to teach them. God then qualifies that by telling them, don't you remember what your eyes see? When you, when you guys were worshiping the false gods of the Moabites all back when they were all around you, and I told you not to do it, but you were doing it, do you remember what you saw? The text says he told Moses to take out all the leaders of the congregation in a broad daylight and put them to death. And then Moses told all of the other people that were left over, if you have any men that have joined themselves, notice the word, it's the same word we use for intimacy in the Old Testament, join themselves to the false god of the Moabites, Baal Peor, they are to be put to death. 24,000 people died that day in a plague that God sent because of their idolatrous worship. Then he reminds them of Mount Sinai. 
You guys remember when I descended in fire and consumed the mountain and the billows of smoke were going up into the heavens and I said not even an animal will come near the mountain lest it die because that was God's holiness? God's voice came in the flashings of lightning and the peals of thunder and you know what the Israelites said? Moses, please, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. This text says to their eyes, it was a consuming fire. Then God reminds them to keep their soul diligently. Diligently is not passive, it's active. You're doing something to keep something. And he says, watch out that you do not practice idolatry. Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now when you hear that as a human, a finite fallen human, all we hear is, well that's pretty selfish. He's jealous? He's consuming? My goodness, does he just need to walk around with a mirror in front of his face? The difference is, God is worthy. Because he's perfect. Holy, holy, holy. Set apart other than us. Not tainted by the sin. Isaiah 30, 27 says, The tongue of the Lord is a consuming fire. Isaiah 33, 14, Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? And as I've mentioned, you may have noticed that that was all Old Testament business. Well, think about Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their property. They kept some of the proceeds. That's not a problem. It's your stuff. The problem was when they tried to appear as though what they laid at the apostles' feet was all they got for the sale. This is me practicing my fake holiness, Peter. That's all I got. That's all I got. Here's what Peter says. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. That's the logical conclusion to Peter's question here. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained, did it not remain your own? After you sold it, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, you have lied to God. And what happens? As a result of these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last. And a great fear came over all who heard it. You see, they had to be reminded, God is a holy God and will be approached as holy and be honored among his people. Then his wife comes in, same thing. Selling it is not the problem. Having money is not the problem. It's what you project outwardly to trying to convince people of that is the problem. Because God doesn't look at that. He sees it, but he looks in here. How you approach God matters more internally than externally. That is not to say that externally is not important. But there might be some of us wondering how this fits in with the God of love that Jesus is. And I want us to just briefly, again, I know I'm bouncing around, but it's hard to do when you're just preaching one kind of concept here. In Psalm 2, it talks about the nations raging against God, and it talks about the sun that God has put upon the earth, and that he's given his kingdom forever. And in verse 12, this is talking about Jesus. It says, do homage to the sun, or honor the sun, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, I'm going to be careful here, but church... This may sting a teensy bit, but Jesus is not 
your buddy. Jesus is not your back seat, front seat, any seat driver. He's not your genie in a Bible. He's not your equal. He's not my equal. Jesus is not here. Jesus is God. Amen? And when God destroyed the earth with a flood on account of man's repeated disobedience and idolatry, Jesus was there. When God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus was there. When the fire of God came out and consumed Nadab and Abihu, Jesus was there. When God allowed the northern kingdom to be wiped off the earth in 722 by the Babylonians, Jesus was there. When God sent the southern kingdom into exile, Jesus was there. And when God pours out his wrath upon the earth just before the end, Jesus will be there. And when God is punishing the sin of the godless and wicked in hell, Jesus will be there. Read Revelation 14. Jesus is a consuming fire. And he also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is God. The same God on the right side of the Bible as he is on the left side of the Bible. He is a consuming fire. I know we're running a bit late, but this needs to be important because the, the writer of Hebrews does a contrast for us. He reminds us of the consuming fire that rested upon Mount Sinai and the, the grace and mercy at Mount Zion. Here's what he says. You have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of the trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was that that you heard begged that no further word would be spoken to you. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Jesus is God. He's a consuming fire. But the great news, the good, when we say good news, it's great news, is that same holy, perfect, consuming fire God, Jesus, gave his life for you. That's, yeah, amen! <laughs> he could have took our life, and rightly so, like he did Nadab and Abihu, but instead he gave his life. So that all who would put their faith in Him alone, not plus works, not plus penance, not plus anything else, Jesus Christ alone, you will be forgiven and granted the gift of eternal life. That is an amazing, amazing great news. That's the same God that is holy. So in order to live a life worthy of a holy God, especially consuming fire of God. Yes, Jesus gave his life for you and me, but that's not so we can live how we want or worship how we want, or as Cain did, give what was left over and expect God to accept it. We have to live a life, a holy life, set apart 
so that our worship will be worthy of a holy God. And how do you do that? I know a beat, the drum, a lot, or dead horse, or whatever metaphor you want to use, but you have got to read this daily, daily. God takes that obedience and he changes your desire into what he wants, not what the world wants. And then you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice Paul didn't say work for, work out through repeated obedience, joyful obedience. And Paul says even that, God is at work in you when you do that and he will will you for good work. It's walking in persistent, joyful obedience, not perfection. All right, and the last thing, and I'll move quickly here, is verse 3 shows us not only is our worship ought to be worthy of a holy God and God is a consuming fire, but God will be treated as holy. I want to quote uh, this smart guy. He's a professor at uh, SEBTS, Dr. Alan Mosley. He says this about this particular passage in Leviticus. He says, People accept responsibility to represent God. Nadab and Abihu represented God poorly, and God held them accountable. God also did not permit Aaron and the other priests to mourn the deaths of Nadab and Abihu. If you read further in Leviticus, you'll see that. For Aaron to restrain his sorrow must have been hard for a grieving father. Here's the hard part. However, this was a defining moment. The refusal to mourn would make the point that nothing, not even a cherished child, is as important as God himself or as important as treating him holy. End quote. Isaiah says, as we sung this morning, God is holy, holy, holy. And the phrase, the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel is used 194 times in the Bible. Even the demons know this about Jesus. In Luke 4.34, the demon says, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. When the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. What was Jesus saying to this man? Well, Jesus was saying, look, if you're going to approach me as your equal, I'm going to treat you as my equal, and I'm going to explain a couple of things to you. First, that there's none good but God. Second, you may have kept nine out of ten commandments, but your love of money, your idolatry is sin. Sell your stuff. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Follow me. He went away sad. Why? Because his God was his money. That was what he worshipped. You see, we can worship anything. Most times it's money because everybody likes to have stuff, myself included. Jesus effectively says, look, if you're not going to treat me as God, then I can't be your God. You treat your money as your God, and that man realized what he was saying. Here's a bit of an illustration. When David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to him from its time visiting the Philistines, when they captured it, he placed it on a cart being pulled by animals. And they hit a pothole, and the cart begins to shake. 
It appears as though it may fall to the ground, and so who's pulling up the rear, reaches out his hand to steady it. What happens? Well, in 2 Samuel it says, But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Uzzah was just trying to steady the ark, this very important thing in the life of Israel. He didn't want it to get dirty. He didn't want to allow it to fall to the ground. And I've dealt with this particular passage before, so I'm not going to go deep into it, but God had given very strict commands about how he was to be approached and how the ark was supposed to be handled, just as he has to New Testament believers. And once again, the disobedience of Uzzah got him killed. Somebody approached God as holy because when he went to go touch that ark and keep it from falling onto the ground, he was essentially saying, that ground is dirtier than I am, a sinful man. It's not true. That ground would have done nothing to the ark of God. But for a man, a sinful fallen man as myself or any one of us was to approach it and mishandle it. We essentially treat God as equal, like our sin doesn't matter. And Uzzah paid the price. This is what Moses says. Then Moses said to Aaron, Is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. God is completely holy, is completely set apart from you and I. He's not our equal. There's nothing wrong with saying Jesus is our friend because he himself says no greater love has man than this than his friend laid down his life for his friends. But it's the mistake we make is to think is that means he has equality with us. He was like us in every way yet and tempted yet without sin. Yes, in a way. He felt what we felt, but he's not equal to us. He is God alone. He does love us. He loves you. He died for you. The all-consuming holy God died for you and for me. But the moment we treat him as our equal and approach him as he's some sort of common entity that we can just do whatever we wish with, that's when he's like, no good. As New Testament believers, we can only approach God through the shed blood of Jesus. Temple torn into, or excuse me, the curtain torn into. Jesus tells us to do this in spirit and truth. Understanding who God is leads to joyful obedience and reverent worship worthy of a holy God. The difference between obedience because I have to and obedience because I want to is knowing more about God. That that same God that demands obedience and worship according to his plan and demands you live a certain life and consumes those who disobey and punishes the wicked and the, and the unrighteous is the same God that sent his son to take your place. The same God that's high and lifted up, that is still on the throne, that nothing will thwart his plans. That same God living in you, going before you, loving you, helping you, leading you on the paths of righteousness, that's what cultivates joyful obedience. God, you should have killed me last night, but your grace gave me more breath this morning. Grace and mercy upon grace and mercy is what drives us to joyful obedience. Well, what can we take from this? I would ask us all to consider how we worship God. 
And again, everything we do is worship. But does it highlight his holiness? Does it instill in us a reverence and an adoration of God? Or do we seek after a man-centered emotional experience? Because nine out of ten times when you're on the mountaintop, you're generally flying so high you very rarely have time to give to the Lord. It's usually in the valley where he speaks the loudest. And the Christian life is generally made up more of valleys than it is mountaintops. That's what makes it hard for people. That's, that's why the rich man can't enter, right? Well, wait a minute. You mean there's going to be difficulty? Well, that's not what they told me on the TV. That's not the gospel I heard. But there is and there will be. But that same God overcame the world for you. How could you not love him? This is so vital. Nadab and Abihu thought they could worship however they wanted, disobeying God's clear commands, and it got them killed. God's a consuming fire, and he will not accept any kind of worship. Church, this is one of my um, frustrations, but repetitious music that is more like chanting than it is exalting God or emotional experiences brought about by that kind of atmosphere is not worship. It's manufactured. Again, there is place for emotion. If you're not felt somewhere deep in your soul, emotional response, then there is maybe a problem there. But it can't be all emotion-driven. Two times in Scripture that occurred was at the molten calf and Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Jesus says to worship in spirit and truth, approach God as holy through the blood of Jesus. Anything else is sin. Thank you for not stoning me. Um, church, I take very seriously what God says in his word. I'm not perfect and I never will be until Jesus comes back. But it is so important to know what he says, to be in his word. Because that's what changes us. We, don't, we, don't, we can't just rub it, hear the gospel, assent to the gospel and say, my life is done. I am a new creature in Christ. But to keep your soul diligently means to actively pursue holiness by actively pursuing obedience because that's what God uses to change your desires. Well, go to the Lord in prayer. And the things that you've given us, Father, I'm so grateful that you are a God of mercy and grace. Father, you've given us prescription. You've given us your word. You've given us your truth. You've given us all the things that you um, desire. And Father, you're worthy of all things. One of my favorite verses in Revelation 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God, you are worthy of worship. You are worthy of praise and honor. You're worthy of anything we could give in the power of the Spirit in ten infinitely times more. Father, I pray today that these words that I've shared with uh, your people would resonate, that they would see you high and lifted up, holy and perfect, a consuming fire, but that they would also see that as they worship you in spirit and truth, Father, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one will come to you apart from him. Father, I pray that you administer to our souls, that you would encourage us, that you love us, that you died for us, 
And there will come a day when you will come again and you will take us to yourselves. And I pray that we will all hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into thy glory. Father, we ask that as we go from this day that we would have favor with you as we seek to present the gospel in drama, the fellowship and communion we're getting ready to have at the food tables. And Father, I pray that your people would love you more today than they loved you yesterday. They'd look more like Jesus today than yesterday, myself included. And that we would seek your face continually in your word. If we want to hear you speak to us, Lord, we read your Bible. If we want to hear you speak audibly, we read it out loud.